Hello, and welcome to the History of the Klondike Gold Rush, Episode 17, Klondike Kate. I'm Keith Halliday. And I'm Pascal Halliday. In today's episode, we're going to look at the life of Klondike Kate Rockwell, probably the most famous of the women who grace the stages of the dance halls in Dawson. Like many historical figures of this era, the story of Kate's life is full of confusion and fabrications, but we've tried to look at a few sources in order to get as complete an account as possible. There may be some instances where we're not able to give exact dates, but when available, we've tried to include them. Many depictions of Kate's life are colored by the interest in her life after she left the Klondike. For starters, Kate didn't even go by Klondike Kate when she was living in Dawson, and would not attach herself to the nickname until 1929. She was born Kathleen Eloise Rockwell in Junction City, Kansas, in 1876, to Martha Murphy and John Rockwell. For both of Kate's parents, this was their second marriage and would not be their last. Kate's parents divorced in 1881, and her mother married her lawyer a year later. Kate's new stepfather, Francis, was not only an attorney, but also sat in the Kansas State Legislature, quite a step up from Kate's telegraph operator biological father. Although Martha had a son from her first marriage, it seems Kate was the only one who accompanied her mother and stepfather to Spokane, Washington, where Francis became a judge. Although Kate's family had the appearance of middle-class Victorian respectability, both Martha and Kate seemed to have struggled to adapt to their new situation. As a child, Kate was apparently headstrong and rebellious and preferred the company of boys over girls. Eventually, Kate's parents decided her behavior would be better handled by a convent boarding school. Kate bounced around these schools during her adolescence and reportedly got quite a reputation as being fast after several incidents involving local boys. Although Kate was by all accounts a difficult teenager, she was very close to her stepfather Francis, and his home in Spokane was the closest to a stable life she had had. However, this ended when Francis and Martha separated. Kate, only 15 years old at the time, would never see her stepfather again. After the separation, Kate and Martha moved several pegs down the social ladder. Martha ran a boarding house in Spokane for a while, but was dissatisfied with this. Eventually, Martha sold the boarding house and decided that she and Kate would go visit her son in Chile. Although this would have been an incredibly ambitious trip, Kate seems to have embraced the opportunity to have an adventure, just as she would for the rest of her life. In Seattle, Kate got herself and her mother hired as stewardesses on a British ship headed to Chile. The captain told Kate that she was not to fraternize with any of the men on board the ship and that she would have to stay in her cabin whenever she was not working. The fact that Kate reportedly became engaged to an officer on the ship while on board suggests that the rule didn't stick. When Kate told her mother about this engagement, Martha put her foot down. Upon arrival in Chile, Kate was sent to another convent school, and Martha left for England. This would become a pattern in Kate's adolescence, as Martha alternately tried to control her daughter's behavior or left her to fend for herself. The convent school in Chile apparently wasn't able to control Kate any more than those in the States. Here, she learned how to roll cigarettes in one hand and became engaged to seven different men. One source says these engagements were discovered when a nun found a drawer full of diamond rings in Kate's room. Eventually, Martha learned of all this and telegrammed Kate to leave Chile and meet her in New York City. In the big city, the respectable jobs open to Kate and Martha were fairly dismal. Martha got a job working in one of the city's many textile factories, but 18-year-old Kate instead applied for a job as a chorus girl, going by the name Kitty Phillips. 
By the age of 20, Kate left her gig at Coney Island and headed back to Washington State after an old friend offered her a job there. When she arrived, Kate found that her work would not be on stage, but on the floor, encouraging men to buy drinks for a commission. Luckily, Kate wouldn't have to work there for long. Suddenly, everyone in Washington was abuzz with news of the gold discovery up in the Klondike. And any dance hall girl worth her salt knew that this could be a rush for them as well. As we've explored on previous episodes, it wasn't exactly easy for the majority of people to get up to the Klondike, and it was especially difficult for women. Kate had to settle for slowly moving closer and closer to the Yukon, working for a while in Seattle and Victoria, British Columbia, in order to get enough money to head north. When Kate finally left Victoria for Skagway, she was accompanied by another dance hall girl and by a promise from her newest fiancé that he would join them in Dawson. The other girl jumped ship at Skagway, and the fiancé died on his way to the Yukon. It's not exactly clear how Kate got from Skagway into the Yukon. Some accounts say she dresses a man, and, although this would not have been unheard of for dancehall girls, we can't really verify whether Kate did this or not. We do know that by 1900, Kate, then 24 years old, was in Bennett, working at the dance hall there. In June of 1900, Kate made it to Canyon City, where a Mountie told her that women were not permitted to shoot the Whitehorse Rapids, and that she'd have to walk the long way around. Here, we have Kate's own word that she dressed as a man and attempted to jump onto a boat as it was pulling out. She managed to get aboard, and would later joke that this was one case in which the Mounties did not get their woman. In Whitehorse, Kate joined up with the Savoy Theatre Company, and after spending the winter there, headed to Dawson on the first boat the next spring. In a move that would lead to confusion later in life, Kate, who was 24 at the time, said she was only 20 when she arrived in Dawson. Throughout her life, Kate would continue to cut years off her age. In New York, Kate had mostly been a chorus girl or a spare performer, filling in when the more favored girls couldn't perform. However, in Dawson City, Kate was billed as a soubrette extraordinaire. A soubrette is a female comedic character often associated with being mischievous or flirtatious. From the moment she appeared on stage at the Savoy Theatre, the miners loved Kate. Although some sources record that Kate did not have a particularly good singing voice, all agree that she was stunningly beautiful, with red hair, blue eyes, and a peaches and cream complexion. She was soon poached from the Savoy by Arizona Charlie Meadows to perform at the Palace Grand Theatre, which has been restored and is a must-see in Dawson City today. Kate had several signature numbers during this time, such as the Egyptian bandage dance, where she came out wrapped in a long bandage of gauze that she would unravel throughout the song. Kate's signature song, however, was a popular ballad called She's More to Be Pitied Than Censured, which acknowledged this negative perception of women who appeared on the stage during this time. The chorus went, quote, Do not scorn her with words fierce and bitter. Do not laugh at her shame and downfall. For a moment to stop and consider that a man was the cause of it all. In Dawson, the dance halls were the place to be, and Kate loved it. Not only was Kate finally free of any chaperones, she was also, for the first time in her life, rich. While she had lived on around $18 a week in the States, she now wore Worth House gowns and covered herself in diamonds. Kate worked hard six days a week, sometimes appearing on stage dozens of times a night. At the Orpheum down the street, girls had to be in the theater from 9 p.m. to 5 a.m., and it's likely the same was expected for Kate. For this, she got $50 a week, plus extra for special performances. 
Just to contrast, the average female factory worker in Boston might make a dollar a day. On top of her wages, a dance hall girl could also earn a commission for how many drinks she got a man to buy. For the most admired girls, this is where the real money could be found. Between her salary, drink commissions, and gifts, many sources put Kate's weekly take as around $750. One suspicion that Kate tried to dispel her whole life was the idea that all dancehall girls were also sex workers. Several sources we found while researching this episode describe Kate as a prostitute or the owner of a brothel. Although Kate admitted that she was hardly a vestal virgin, in her words, she always maintained that she had not engaged in sex work. We do know that Kate was not registered as a prostitute in Dawson City, nor was she ever arrested for anything like it. Whether she engaged in any less explicit exchanges of love for money is much harder to determine. While Kate undoubtedly had many wealthy admirers, in the end she didn't marry money as some of her fellow dancehall girls did. Instead, Kate fell in love with a waiter, Alexander Pantages. If this name sounds familiar to you, you'll find out why later in the story. Alex, who was born in Greece as Pericles Alexandros Padazis, was handsome and charming. He and Kate enjoyed talking about art and music, and spent their days off picnicking and picking wildflowers on the riverbank. In 1900, after about a year, Alex and Kate moved in together. By 1901, this premarital cohabitation was illegal in Dawson City, but it seems very few people were actually arrested for this. The Northwest Mounted Police Report of 1901 only records one arrest for this offense. The biggest criticism Kate faced for this choice was not because she was living with a man before marriage, but because some felt that Alex was using Kate for money and a warm place to live. By this point, Alex had been fired from his job and was either unable or unwilling to find work as a waiter. But this problem was solved when he and Kate decided to go into business for themselves and bought the Orpheum Theater. By this point... Kate would have saved up a hefty nest egg from her work at the Palace Grant. Although neither of them had much experience running a business, the Orpheum was a hit. Alex was the MC and host, while Kate managed the entertainment, all the while continuing to appear on stage herself. A newspaper advertisement for the Orpheum from 1902 tells us that one of Kate's performances was a, believe it or not, burlesque on the Spanish-American War. It was at the Orpheum that Kate would give the most famous performance of her career, at the Orpheum's raucous Christmas Eve party, the miners made a crown out of tin cans and candles and presented it to Kate, crowning her the Queen of the Klondike. Kate put the crown on and danced on the tables, the wax dripping into her long red hair, which she later had to cut off. The period when Kate and Alex were opening the Orpheum is also one of the murkiest periods in Kate's personal life. During the winter of 1900 to 1901, Kate was taking care of a baby. Although Dawson City gossip held that the baby was Kate's, Kate said the infant belonged to a friend who was sick with tuberculosis. According to Kate, the friend had become pregnant and was abandoned by her lover. Remember that famous 1900 Christmas Eve performance? According to Kate, her friend was in a cabin behind the theater, giving birth as Kate performed. As soon as she heard, Kate slipped out and held her friend as she died. If this story sounds unlikely to you, you have that in common with much of Dawson City. Most assumed the baby was Kate and Alex's, and Kate was using the story to cover up an illegitimate child. Well, we don't know exactly where this baby came from, we also don't know where he went. In a later interview, Kate would say that, when the boy was old enough to understand what she did for a living, she took him to the United States and handed him over to foster parents. 
Kate also reported, rather cryptically, that the boy was now one of the most successful engineers in America and had no idea she was ever a part of his life. The story of this baby is similar to many stories Kate would tell later in her life that emphasized her charity and sweetness, all while glossing over inconvenient inconsistencies and holes. While the Orpheum had opened at the height of the Klondike Gold Rush, things were now winding down. The theater burnt down no less than three times, and profits were dwindling. Alex made several trips to Nome during this period, but Kate seems to have been reluctant to leave Dawson. Perhaps tiring of the boom and bust cycle of Gold Rush towns, Kate and Alex abandoned the idea of opening another business in the North, and instead took a trip down to the States, posing as man and wife. In 1902, the couple returned to Dawson, but by this point it was clear that mining the miners in Dawson City was not going to work anymore. So Kate took another trip down south, with the goal of finding some theater for them to refurbish. Alex stayed in Dawson and sent loving letters to Kate, with compliments and reassurances coupled with demands for money. Instead of buying a theater, Kate invested in the hot new thing in the entertainment industry, movies. Kate moved to Victoria, B.C. and bought a Nickelodeon, a type of theater that usually mixed short, silent films and newsreels with a few live vaudeville performances. Continuing with this idea, Alex traveled to Seattle and bought a Nickelodeon there, naming it the Crystal Palace. Kate sold her theater and joined Alex in Seattle, where he bought another theater. Although Nickelodeons were gaining popularity, it was nothing compared to the money they had made in the Klondike. In order to finance Alex's growing empire, Kate would spend the next few years alternately performing in Seattle or touring the rest of America. In Texas, Kate met a new partner for her act, 17-year-old Lois Mendenhall. She was a quiet and refined violinist, the perfect foil for Kate's brash and risque stage persona. After a year, Kate returned to Seattle with Lois in tow. Both Kate and Lois performed at Alex's Crystal Theater for a while, but they still needed money, so Kate headed to Spokane in 1905 on a bit of a hometown tour. While in Spokane, Kate got a letter from Alex. He had gotten married to Lois. Alex's public statement on his marriage was probably a twist of the knife, as he said that, until he met Lois, he didn't know anything much about good women. By this point, Kate had spent the best years of her career supporting Alex, and was by all accounts still in love with him. Alex's sudden marriage to a much younger girl from the right side of the tracks must have stung deeply. In May of 1905, Kate sued Alex for breach of promise, arguing that Alex had promised to marry her and, by not doing so, had caused emotional distress to the tune of $25,000 in damages. They eventually settled out of court for an unknown amount. Kate sank into a deep depression at this point, but reportedly received a letter from a dance hall friend who counseled her to pick up the pieces and move on. Flossie told Kate not to make herself into something that Alex would always be glad he was rid of, but into something he would always wish he had kept. With nothing left in Seattle, Kate returned to Dawson and then Fairbanks. The next few years of Kate's life would be a string of business failures and self-destructive behavior. Vaudeville and burlesque were declining as more and more theaters switched to showing movies. Interestingly, her rescue at this time came from her mother. While her daughter was collecting gold nuggets in Dawson, Martha had gone into the real estate business in the Pacific Northwest. She offered Kate a homestead near Bend, Oregon. Far from her lavish old apartments in the Klondike, the homestead had a small shack and 350 acres of brush to clear. Always open to adventure, Kate jumped in and began homesteading. Although the work was difficult, Kate compared the experience to having her soul cleaned. 
During this time, Kate also had a short, tumultuous marriage to Floyd Warner that ended in divorce. Although Kate had received ownership of her homestead in 1917, she clearly did not fancy herself a long-term farmer. Kate did not stay in Bend during this time, but moved around the Pacific coast, always broke and always unsatisfied. At one point, Kate was reportedly so desperate that she went to see Alex, who was now the millionaire owner of the Pantages Theater chain. According to Kate, Alex pulled out his wallet and handed her six dollars, and then she left. After this, Kate had a period of relative stability. She flipped houses and got the nickname Aunt Kate. Depending on the source you read, this was either a sign of community affection or a sly reference to Kate owning a brothel. In 1931, Kate was invited to perform at the Stampede, an annual gathering of Klondike prospectors and stampeders. Here, she took to the stage once again, singing old favorites and charming the miners once more. At this event, they recrowned her Queen of the Klondike, and Kate was transported back to her 20s as she led the group in carousing. Although there were many old admirers at this event, Kate's most loyal fan was in fact back in Dawson, sitting on his claim. Johnny Matson had never been a flashy man and had never even had the courage to speak to Kate when she had been in Dawson. Johnny had been one of the few to stay in the Klondike after the rush, but still tried to keep up with news from the outside. During this period, Kate had experienced a flurry of news interest, largely due to her status as a potential prosecution witness in the 1929 trial of Alexander Pantages for sexual assault. Although Kate hadn't actually testified, several newspapers had done profiles on her, and it was in one of these papers that Johnny read that Kate was alive and well, and, more importantly, single. Johnny wrote to her, and the two struck up a correspondence that would last from 1931 to 1933. Although he was hardly a Klondike king, Johnny also managed to send Kate money during this time. In the summer of 1933, Kate and Johnny met up in Vancouver and got married soon after. Their marriage was presented in the press as a fairy tale love affair, as the distinguished old prospector finally married the aging but still beautiful dance hall girl. On their honeymoon, Kate returned to Dawson for the first time in decades. However, Dawson and Kate had moved on from their sparkling personas of the Klondike Gold Rush period. Dawson was dusty and quiet, and nobody showed up to throw flowers and gold nuggets when she stepped on the stage at the deserted Orpheum Theater. Kate would spend the last years of her life living mostly in Oregon. She visited Johnny in the Yukon, but never stayed long. Although gold fever had waned, the public was still fascinated in stories of the 1898 rush, and Kate became a bit of a celebrity spokesperson, appearing in print ads and making paid appearances. In 1946, Johnny passed away and Kate sold his claim. She married once more to a man named Bill Van Duren and continued to make media appearances. Kate died in 1957. If you believe the first birth date we have for Catherine Rockwell, she was 81 years old. By this point, Kate had been the inspiration for countless stories, characters, and films, few of which had anything to do with her real life. Although Kate did not engage in the more geological methods of finding gold in the Klondike, she had her own cycle of boom and bust that in many ways exemplified the lives of those who went north in 1898. If you'd asked someone about Klondike Kate during her life, you could receive descriptions ranging from the most generous, good-hearted woman in Dawson to a gold-digging, immoral hussy. Regardless, nobody ever accused Kate of not taking chances. As the New York Sun put it after her death, quote, Klondike Kate is a legend, and legends, unlike old soldiers, neither die nor fade away. They grow in color with time, and thus will be the fate of the memory of the fabulous Kate. Klondike Kate will never die.
If you liked this episode, please tell a friend and rate us on Apple Podcasts. If you really liked the episode, please go to our website, which also has links and maps about this episode, and make a donation. That's klondikegoldrush.org. Even a few bucks helps cover the cost of equipment and hosting. We didn't do this podcast to get rich, but as an old miner might say, it would be nice to make enough to get our grub steak back. Thank you.